Hello, and if we're still saying it, a happy new year to you. Let's hope 2021 is a bit brighter than 2020. Mind you, don't we say something similar every year? Thank you for streaming The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. This is a fortnightly look at the technologies that are going to affect our lives in, wait for it, the near future. And in this episode, we're going to look at something that's been a massive issue for quite some time now, privacy regulation. For any business that collects personal data on its customers and does business across national boundaries, the regulatory landscape can be a dizzying patchwork where the rules are different everywhere and constantly changing. For example, Privacy Shield, a popular mechanism allowing US companies to transfer and store EU personal data, is down and out. A draft of China's controversial new data privacy law is in, and with the UK now having left the EU, who knows what our next privacy law will be. My guest is a specialist in all of this and more. He's Chief Compliance Officer at Insights, and his name is Chris Strand. Chris, welcome. Uh, thanks, Guy. Pleasure to be here. Tell me a little bit about Insights and what you do. Insights is a, is a unique company. It offers what everyone will say in the industry is an all-in-one cyber threat intelligence platform. So what that means is it, it detects and neutralizes cyber attacks, as we say, outside the wire. Well, really what that means, a simple explanation of that is we provide an external threat protection suite, and that will monitor thousands of sources across the clear, deep, and dark web and help folks identify threats that can directly, that are directly targeting the organizations, uh, targeting their digital footprint, which is everything that they have out on the deep, uh, clear, deep, and dark web, and help them correlate those threats to find intent and capabilities and the opportunities that all these adversaries are using in cyberspace. So the idea is to create some form of actionable intelligence, we like to call it, that will help organizations defend proactively. And then we take a step further, which is in my world, uh, and enable these security teams and folks to, to automate that intelligence into a, a sort of alignment and generate reports and, and things like attack indicators on data leakage, phishing, brand impersonation, fraud, as well as, of course, regulatory compliance and information privacy regulations, and hopefully, well, hopefully, hopefully not violations, but find the potential violations before they might happen. We are here to talk about privacy, but uh, you did use a couple of terms just in case the listeners um, aren't familiar with them. Deep web and dark web, or deep and dark web, I think you said. Perhaps you could just explain those? These are all the layers. So if you think of a, um, let's think of an iceberg, what most of us know is that first layer of the iceberg. We don't see the rest of it. We see that first layer, and that would be the clear web. And that's where we interact on a daily basis when we're out on the internet and, and creating our, as I put it, our digital footprint. Now, the deep and dark web is all the stuff underneath that where all this information can get funneled and all these non, let's say, non-indexed web pages and sources and such of where information goes uh, through that entire let's call it online presence. So it's, it's all the different layers of where information is, is traveling, stored, stolen, traded, et cetera. Uh, so getting back to the privacy issue, I mean, there's been a lot of coverage about data, um, GDPR in the EU, by which I suspect the UK is no longer technically covered unless we want to trade with EU countries and privacy in general. I mean, if someone was starting up a small business right now, what do they need to know? Wow. So that's a great and very large question, but uh, it's a great one, Guy, because it's one that I get asked quite often, you know, with the evolution of the GDPR over the last two years, 
uh, as well as the, the pending departure of the UK from, from the GDPR controlled region in general. So I have thoughts on both uh, in terms of what UK businesses should do in regard to both the departure from the GDPR and also adapting to any following version of a, let's say a UK privacy law in the future. So, you know, I certainly think that in the near term, uh, while negotiations continue on the topic of a UK-based privacy mandate, companies, you know, let's say both large and small actually, should really start to prepare contingency plans in case there's no definitive agreement reached uh, and maybe they're left implementing their own data transfer uh, arrangements. Uh, and that's that would be in order to satisfy the current GDPR requirements if they're, you know, most UK businesses, I would almost assume, would need to trade information with EU-based uh, member states. And, and this, again, you know, I mean, everyone will say, yeah, here's a simple thing that you can do, but really uh, these can be as simple as usage plans outlining how they intend to map data to their business. And I also think that the, the UK has an advantage uh, in that, you know, in the past two years, they've adopted their businesses to the guidelines of the GDPR. So they've had that, they've had that runway to get acquainted with it. And they probably, if at least made a start implementing the necessary training and programs to adhere to those privacy laws. So, so technically, any existing or, or relatively new business should be in, in a pretty good place or a pretty decent starting spot in order to get up to speed quickly uh, in dealing with the GDPR or any uh, EU business and also adapting to a possible new UK law when, when it comes around. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I should probably just clarify for listeners, because you're referring to a, a, any forthcoming legislation. We are, of course, recording this in advance. It's going out in January, but uh, it is currently, as we speak, a very rainy day uh, in uh, November. So uh, the negotiations are still uh, ongoing. I know this shows about the near future, but uh, in terms of EU negotiations, we're not that psychic. So <laughs> I mean, it, it, what occurs to me is it's not just the uh, new businesses. Uh, it's the uh, the corporates. Are, are they making money out of uh, private details? I keep reading an awful lot of what seems to me could be hysteria, could be panic. But is there any substance behind the idea that uh, people are misusing our de details out there? Well, you know, there's no question. So absolutely, uh, the corporates are making money out of private details. And, and by the way, since uh, I come from the intelligence world or live, eat, and breathe within the intelligence world from regulatory sense, they're making money both legitimately and illegitimately you know, making money out of our private details. I, I can tell you, you know, insights in my daily uh, existence here in, in living in intelligence, as I was saying, we find private details for sale on the, on the deep and dark web that I was talking about all day long. And, you know, we, we've done some recent uh, studies on the, on the value of that private, that private information on the, on the dark web. So there's a large motivation for businesses, whether, uh, you know, to, to make money off of our private data, whether it be illegally or, or legally. The thing is our private details, whether we're willing to give them or whether companies can figure out how to take and collect them are the lifeblood of so many of these large uh, corporations. And our data is now a critical currency uh, used to obtain customers, run marketing programs and generate revenue. So those are all the, the legal reasons. And then it, it's worth an awful lot of money in some cases of course, uh, when it's sold and traded, depending on what it is, on the deep and dark web, and also used in campaigns to hold us up or use it as liability or as a liability creator. So in the case of some forms of uh, new forms of ransomware, 
where it's not it's not a case of stealing the data just to steal the data and sell it. It's to steal the data and then hold you hostage and say, hey, uh, you're in for a huge GDPR fine if I if I report you to the authorities and let them know that your data has been stolen and this GDPR or private data, personal identifying information is is out there in the wild or it could be out there in the wild. So, you know, that data is often basically our private information is worth far more to a corporation than again to use it for legitimate reasons out on the deep and dark web. And this has also spawned, if you look at the, the money being made off of our private data, it's spawned an entire industry. So there's a whole host of data mining companies that exist only to collect information, manipulate it, and, and then sell our private details. And again, it can be for uh, legitimate reasons. There's so many analytical companies and data mining companies now, many which we have seen in the news over recent years because they've sort of crossed that threshold of using data for legitimate reasons versus non-legitimate reasons. But that, there's a whole entire industry built upon that now that didn't exist even five years ago. In amongst all this, how do consumers actually find out about their rights? I'll tell you part of what's behind this question. I see a lot of uh, coverage and a lot of commentary on social media from people who say they've used my, my data, they shouldn't have used my data. I went into Facebook and I had a look at my settings, my security settings, mm-hmm. and saw just how many, just by clicking on an app or a silly quiz or something, uh, just how many personal details I'd shared. I mean, there was one on, uh, you know, can you name this Beatles song for its first, uh, from its first line or something. I mean, I do work very hard, but I do have downtime. And uh, I, I clicked on that and I went through and had a look and the provider of that quiz, I'd unintentionally clicked on the, their ability to see what my religion was. I mean, why they need to know that, I have no idea. But I'm just wondering uh, what, you know, how people find out what their rights are, what they might have given away unintentionally. Well, there's, there's the word unintentionally. And often those rights or that data is given away for the fact of point of convenience. If you ask my family whether they're sick of hearing me say, don't put that on the internet, don't give that information up, you don't need this application that bad, you don't need to give this information, that's contributing, it's not really answering the question, but it's contributing to the, the information that we're, you know, we're planting out there and feeding into the various digital existence that we have. We're giving away far too much information for convenience. But I mean, on the, on the topic of consumer rights and consumer rights and finding out about those rights, we have a great deal of, of rights in any jurisdiction. And it, well, it depends on what implemented data protection law there might be. And many people are uh, familiar or have some form of knowledge of consumer rights. But generally, uh, as you are looking through Facebook and finding out, hey, why is this all this all of this data here? These things are usually published. Now, sometimes they're sort of in the fine print, and it's not so easy to figure out what my rights are within this particular platform and whatnot. But um, consumers, of course, have basic rights like business obligation to keep them safe from data. So all of these forums and companies and whatnot have to basically conform some more than others, depending on the jurisdiction, to keep your data safe from harm, keep the consumers informed on, on that data use and practices. And also, you have the right to know how you can file complaints and inquiries on that data. And as you went on and found out what was out there, you have every right to do that. And you have every right to, of course, ask to 
And especially where you're sitting in the UK, you have the right to right now to ask that they remove that and how and, and instruct on how that data is using. So as a data subject, of course, you have uh, various rights and you have the right to be informed on this. Now, where is all that stuff sitting and, and, and where can we find that out? Every time we uh, click a consent form or hit that accept button, we're basically accepting all of those rules and regulations. And that's usually, I mean, in, in my world, that's the end user license agreement or the EULA. And there's many forms of these, but we, we see one of these every time we install a new application or a new app on our mobile device or we're working with a corporation to, to use our data. That's in there and, and it's usually very well written. Most of us never read it. We scroll through it and we hit accept, but those rights are in there and companies are required to list how they're using your data and what they're using it for. And we consent to it, but all too often, we don't read the fine print, and um, you know. I guess we could all we could all uh, use or take a little bit more time to to analyze that information, or at least think about why we're accepting that user agreement. If we're not going to read through it, and let's cut to the chase, most of us won't. I'm guilty of it as well, but I always do a double take. I take a zero trust attitude in terms of my data rights uh, within any situation. And I think twice as to, do I really need to do this? Do I really need this application or do I really need to give up this information simply to have an app that's going to remind me of my, you know, my, all my colleagues' birthdays uh, throughout the year, something like that. Do you want to sound as confident as my interviewee in this episode? If you talk to the press or other media, are you worried you'll be misquoted, although just publish their story and not yours? Clapperton Media Associates can help with coaching. Drop me a note, guy at clapperton.co.uk, and we'll arrange a time for an exploratory call. Now, back to the podcast. I suppose the other thing is that uh, it's, as you say, it's just far easier to hand over the um, data just because it's ticking a box. It doesn't feel like handing over data in the same way that uh, the one that always gets me, and I know I've done this in the past, is something says, do you want to fill in all your details here independently or do you want to just log on with Google or Facebook or Twitter and uh, we'll fill in the details from there? That must mean that uh, you're, you're, I, I would have thought the more portals your data is going through to get to these other companies, the more potential security risks there are. Absolutely. And that's such a good point to bring up because uh, many of us, again, look at that as, wow, this is the ultimate convenience, a single sign-on. I can just simply click right here and then it's taken care of. Uh, and, and my Facebook uh, credentials now is going to take care of these nine different applications that I'm logging into. And it's perfectly legitimate and it's perfectly fair for companies to make our lives more convenient. I mean, we can't always view it like I do as everything is, has malicious intent and don't trust anything. But, you know, that's in some cases, it's kind of a sneaky way to say, yeah, don't worry about it. We've got your back covered here and we're just going to take care of just use your Facebook ID to to log into this. And we'll this new application will assume all of those agreements that you already accepted. So you've, you're consenting now to a whole different area, which could be a different way of using your data, but you're consenting to the same principles and whatnot that you did under Facebook or Twitter or any of the above. Because the, when you joined in 2012, it looked so much like 2021, obviously. <laughs> um, 
that's yeah. uh, uh, the other. That's when you're dealing with companies using data legitimately and following the law. It gets even more complicated when things happen. Like a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, once had his identity completely stolen by someone trying to con women out of money. They put it put his face on some sort of dating site, and um, a lot of women thought he personally was pursuing widows. Uh, nothing could have been further from the truth. But I mean, how could he have avoided uh, something like that? It's a tricky one. So, of course, all the principles we're talking about, we just talked about in terms of giving away your data for convenience, all hold true here. However, I mean, sometimes you need to have existence in somewhere. I mean, if, if you're, you know, if you're on that dating site for a, a real legitimate reason, well, you're going to be logged into it. So it's, there's so many factors that can lead to identity theft. But really, there's some rules of thumb. And I'll, as I was telling you earlier, my family is very familiar with, uh, and as I said, sick of hearing me talk about it in terms of my paranoia. But there's some of these rules of thumb, which, which I prescribe that we can all do to help avoid it. So I mentioned earlier uh, in our discussion about our digital footprint. So one of the things we can do is keep our digital footprint as small as possible. So your digital footprint, again, is that trail of data you create while you're on the internet. And it's a combination of all the information traces that you've been both intentionally and unintentionally left throughout the internet. So we can question the need to give away data for convenience as a way to curve potential identity threat. Just reducing that digital footprint can help and go a long way because there's less ways or there's less opportunities for adversaries to correlate that data together because identity theft is a, is a complex algorithm that it seems quite easy, but I mean, really, that's how it's done. Is It's not just taken from one site or the, um, the adversaries are not going to one site. And by the way, the adversaries are sometimes computer algorithms that are just compiling these, this data. It's not, a lot of people feel like, oh, some thief stole my data. Maybe that's the case if you're a high profile individual, but as just individuals going about our day-to-day -day lives, this could be, as I said, a, a, a computer or a robot going out and collecting that data through algorithms and compiling that together and making correlations of, of personalities and identities that then are used in an illicit way. So as I said, in this day and age, we're really far too quick to give up critical information for the sake of making our lives easier. So we could all stand to be a little more paranoid, again, not as much as I am, but to consistently question why sensitive data is needed in our digital transactions. And of course, we can take measures, other measures, using solutions and such to monitor our credit. We've all heard of credit monitoring and you know, protect our devices, question why we have so many apps on our mobile device, monitor our financial reports and statements. This is all sort of monitor your identity uh, 101, but a lot of us don't do it. And again, I'm as guilty as the next person and in order to, to possibly stay alert to scams, right? Question things, question everything that you deal with on the internet. Maybe even take that zero trust approach. That's what I do uh, with my online existence. Basically, I don't trust anything that's unsolicited. And these days, almost everything is unsolicited that you're seeing, especially when you start getting advertisements and such across your email and, and, and the like. So that zero trust approach, again, is another way that we can essentially start to question and, and put that into practice on top of everything else that we're doing to avoid identity theft. 
There's also a few uh, fairly elementary things you can do, aren't there? I, I'm, you know, like if you've uh, if you've been on a holiday and you want to share it with your friends and you put your holiday pictures on Facebook, like loads of people do, just make sure that you're not um, yeah, that uh, you're only sharing with friends. Look at your sharing settings. Look at because if they're accessible to everybody, then they could be poached and used for your uh, for a bit of identity theft or for a full fake ID on a dating site or something. Exactly as happened to my uh, my, my colleague. I'm just wondering how you see this evolving over time, because it seems to me it's getting more complex as more companies join in with the legitimate uh, use of data. It's getting more and more complex rather than less so. It's definitely becoming more complex because as with our digital identities, so too are the opportunities to spread our digital identities out across the internet. So the environment itself is becoming more and more complex by the day. If you look back even five years in terms of how we interacted digitally um, in terms of sharing information and the information that we're, we're, or the opportunities we've had to share information out across our online existence, that's grown exponentially uh, and it continues to grow exponentially. So there's tons of opportunity for illicit activities to happen on our data because of the complexity of our online existence. As companies even started to move to the cloud, for example, I mean, you know, in the last say 10 years, this has been a big thing. Every company now is moving to subscription. They're offering software as a service as their entire business model. And that's kind of pushing us all out there and more exposed and hence more vulnerable within our online existences. So our entire lives are gradually moving into this, this more complex world that's deep, dark, and vast. And again, that's adding the complexity and the opportunity for various illicit activities to take advantage of that data uh, and then it's also allowing more opportunities for those correlations to happen than I talked about. So, you know, to compile, there's a lot more to mine now and compile information for various reasons uh, based on our, our digital identities. Finally, having cheered everybody up for the uh, beginning of the new year, can you perhaps tell listeners how, where they can find out more about yourself and uh, what you do? Well, listeners can definitely uh, visit intsites.com. Uh, for the latest news on, on my updates and my current endeavors for data security and regulatory compliance. As well, they can, they can check me out and hit me on LinkedIn uh, under Christopher Strand, uh, obviously associated with Insights, um, or they can reach me on Twitter and find me there at strandman at cstrand18. That's great. So Chris Strand, Chief Compliance Officer of Insights, and that is Intsights with a T in the middle. Thank you very much for joining me. It was absolutely my pleasure, Guy. Pleasure speaking with you. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk or my media training site at remotemediatraining.com. I'll be back in two weeks' time. See you then. Thank you.